Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'll be talking today with Philip Bump, a national columnist for the Washington Post, about his first book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. And you can learn more at his site, pbump, pbump.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites and at my site terrencemcnally.net t-e-r-r-e-n-c-e-m-c-n-a-l-l-y.net I've been focusing a lot lately on generations the boomers the 60s and and I was excited to learn of my guest's new book The Aftermath recent guests in this space include Bill McKibben um author and activist, but what we were talking about most recently was his new organization, Third Act, which is aimed at building a community of experienced Americans over the age of 60, determined to change the world for the better. And their first two focuses are protecting the climate, makes sense given uh, Bill's experience with 350.org and all of his other work, but also uh, given what's happened in the country over the last few years, strengthening our democracy. Also interviewed recently, Eunice Lynn Nichols. She's the co-CEO of CoGenerate. That's the recently chosen new name for what had been called Encore, as that organization's focus evolved from seniors' purposeful second and third acts, that was Encore, to cogeneration, bringing older and younger people together to solve problems and bridge divides. As they said, they realized it wasn't seniors working for young people that was going to make the real difference in society or what they wanted to promote. It was seniors working with young people. Other conversations over the past year or so related generations include James Gaines and his book, The 50s, which I highly recommend. It looks into the kind of untold stories of the unsung heroes who were sowed the seeds for what later became movements in the 60s. Um, Steve Lopez, the uh, award-winning columnist for the LA Times, wrote a book called Independence Day, um, which focuses in all sorts of ways on retirement, what it means, when it's time to do it, what happens to people when they do, and who are those people who never do. Um, and then a, a, a few books on the 60s specifically. Kevin Boyle's The Shattering, which really focuses more on the, um, the silent majority than it does on the uh, young people uh, getting all the headlines at the time. Uh, David and Margaret Talbot's By the Light of Burning Dreams, which tells the stories uh, chapter by chapter of leaders and movements. Um, uh, so it'll Heather Booth, for instance, who started the uh, the the Jane organization, which which was um, how to get abortions before Roe v. Wade in the news over the last year, as you can imagine, things like that. Folks who uh, so it, it would trace the, the story of 
a leader and a movement. And uh, Edward Morgan's uh, a book called What Really Happened in the 60s, which really looks at the 60s in the way it was interpreted by the media, and he feels misinterpreted and minimized by the media. So um, that's been some of the conversations I've been having. At the same time, I've been developing and talking about something I call 60s 2.0. And I'm going to lay this out so that Philip knows kind of what my thinking is, and I think he'll see how it links to the conversation we're about to have. I see in millennials and younger a lot of the questions, the values, the visions that lose nothing of their uniqueness or their timeliness or their value if I say that, to me, they echo a lot of the things that uh, were going on in the 60s. And I believe they stand a chance, that is, they, younger people, stand a chance of building something deeper and more sustainable this time with the help of technology, demographics, and a bit of cultural and social evolution. First, technology. It makes it easier to reduce material consumption, which was one of the aims back in the 60s and is certainly one of the aims now given climate change. Um, and also to interact with diverse others unbound by geography. You're, you're not alone in your small town feeling the way you are. Now you can connect with a wider community. Um, and also the uh, possibility of organizing much more rapidly and efficiently. Um, as I point out, it took about four months to organize the moratorium against the Vietnam War. It took about four hours to organize the airport demonstrations against uh, Trump's initial Muslim travel ban. Second, the greatly, enormously expanded talent pool available. Now, leadership in the 60s was dominated by males and except for race-defined organizations, overwhelmingly white. And today, young, younger people can tap the genius and the energy not only of women, but of so many others whose voices were not heard in those days. And third, I joke that in the 60s, there were 100 beatniks in San Francisco and 100 in Greenwich Village, and other than that, we were on our own. Today, and this is where um, uh, this conversation really plays a part, as well as organizations like Third Act and Co-Generate and so on, millions of our generation and older welcome and support young people with progressive visions. The number, the resources, and the power that our activation can add to their movements, I think, can be the game changer. Now, I say this when I also say we face, but do not face up to, a number of critical crises, inequality, democracy, racism and otherness, pandemics and public health, climate and our relationship to the rest of nature, and, and climate may be the most essential, but these are all critical. And as I see our media and our politics not being dealt with and, and, and not looking like the prospects are even well of they, them being dealt with effectively. So what I, when I say 60s 2.0, I envision an energized, engaged, effective, intentionally multirational alliance that is possible then to tip things in the right direction and to do it in time. And then as I've been thinking about this, the, the whole notion of OK Boomer, uh, kind of a derisive uh, meme that, uh, aimed at my generation, is that an obstacle? Well, at this moment, I believe generational conflict is a distraction. And perhaps the key line uh, in the way I approach is if the challenges we confront are big enough to divide us, then they must be big enough to bring us together. 
And that brings us to today's guest and his book's long look at the baby boom generation, its influence, and the inevitable waning of that influence and the transition to what comes next. Philip Bump is a national columnist for the Washington Post, writes its weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart. And prior to that, he led politics coverage for the Atlantic Wire. In the past, he also worked as a designer at Adobe. He's recently published his first book, and that's the one we're talking about, The Aftermath, an assessment of how the baby boom created modern America and where power, wealth, and politics will shift as the boom ends. Welcome, Philip Bump, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Wednesday, July 5th. Uh, thank you very much. And I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. Uh, we've got an hour. Can you tell us a bit about how you see your path to the work you do today? And feel free to go way back. Uh, childhood inspirations, mentors, turning points, uh, how your time at Adobe led you to become what, you, what you're doing today, those sorts of things. So I would say that the through line of my career has been that I am interested in not necessarily just numbers, but really how uh, data can help us explain and understand the underpinnings of what's going on in the world. And so I've, I've always been, you know, my time at Adobe, I was, a, I was a designer there. And essentially what I did is I, I, when we got new software products, I would tell people how to use them. I would break down the new features of the software, for example, and explain how they were used. Oh, uh, and I think mm -hmm. that's sort of what I do in the news as well. You know, <laughs> something happens in the news and then I sort of articulate what it is uh, that, you know, why this is important, what the under, uh, undergirding elements of it are. Uh, often that includes data analysis, uh, you know, looking at what polling says, for example, about a particular situation, things along those lines. Uh, so I think that's really been the through line uh, of my career is just that, that ability, I hope, to uh, break things down in a way that's comprehensible and data tends to be a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I, now I understand. I, I sort of wasn't quite clear how one jumps from one to the other. But to you, it wasn't a jump. It was a, an unfolding. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I had been doing stuff for the web for quite some time, which is how I got the job at Adobe. And that included, you know, I've had a I had a personal website, which sort of fell by the wayside once I started to post, you know, almost a decade ago. But I started a personal website in 2001, 2000. Uh, I guess it was 2001. Uh, where I was doing the same sort of thing, you know, looking at what's happening in the news and, and analyzing it through data. Uh, that was at the same time that I was actually at Adobe. Uh, so those two things sort of emerged simultaneously. Yeah, and, and I, I mentioned it in uh, that brief bio, but tell people again about your newsletter. So uh, if, if what you've just said provokes them, they can uh, uh, subscribe. Yeah, so the newsletter is called How to Read This Chart, and it is hard not to make it sound dry <laughs> because it's ostensibly visual pictures of data and walk through what it is shipping and news and interesting charts and maps and tables. Uh, and I think comes off effectively as something that is generally engaging and not just, you know, like, here's this chart, here's what the y-axis is, here's what the x-axis is, which I obviously try and avoid. <laughs> right, right. Okay, and, and by the way, um, I will say that for me, and I, I, I'm saying also to listeners out there, um, this is uh, what, what Philip does is helpful. It's, 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 he's a translator for us. Um, rather than just skipping over that chart and going to the next paragraph, uh, which I <laughs> confess I have a tendency to do, um, he will help you make sense of it and make it actually uh, useful to you. So, um, 
let me ask any response to my introduction. Well, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book. Right? <laughs> so yes, I, I, I have a lot of response to it that is, you know, articulated over the course of 300 some odd pages. Um, you know, I mean, you're not you're not wrong. And I think you, you, you obviously put your finger on a number of the things that uh, are important differentiators between older and younger Americans. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to it. Very good. Very good. And how did this book happen? It's interesting that it is your first. What made mm -hmm. you want to write something on boomers and why this book at this time? Was there a moment that you said, you know, uh, this is a book. I, I got to write this. Uh, not really. I mean, I had for some time since uh, I had been at the Atlantic, I had focused on the issue of generations in part because, you know, there there have long been these little internet brouhaha's about, you know, what what am I? Am I Gen X? Am I, uh, <laughs> am I a millennial or whatever? And people love to argue about this, this stuff. So, you know, all, all more, more power to them. Uh, but back in 2014, I was like, I'm just going to call the Census Bureau and see how the Census Bureau defines it. And the Census Bureau told me, well, actually, we only recognize the baby boom as a distinct generational event because it has these actual demographic markers which set it apart from, from other groups. Uh, and so that was always in the back of my head as, I, as these discussions occurred. You know, this is 2014. And then, of course, we had uh, the emergence in 2015 of the, the Donald Trump candidacy and his slogan, which is very specifically an appeal to, uh, you know, sort of tradition and nostalgia and make America great again, and how that very much overlapped with this idea that we have this older generation, uh, this very large older generation uh, that is, sees America changing, but also sees power uh, shifting. Uh, and it just became very apparent that this was an undergirding narrative of what was happening broadly in the United States and, and seemed to be worth fleshing out. Yeah. Let, let me just r remind people that um, Obama was he was a boomer, but just on the on the on the cusp. Am I right? He was a boomer. Yeah, he was. But, you know, the, the baby boom was very long. It was yeah. 19 years long, essentially inclusive. Uh, and yes, he was on the tail end. People often think that Biden is a boomer. He's not actually. He's older than the. That's baby right. Which is which is uh, kind of crazy. Generation. Right. And but, you know, but, we had we've had four boomer presidents, and three of them were born the first year of the baby boom, uh, and that was and within months of, months of each other. other. Right. That's yeah. exactly right. That's right. And, and also, I just want to point out that's Bill Clinton, perhaps the 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 sort of least fulfilled, uh, 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 the least. The president who least fulfilled his promise uh, is my sort of sense. And then Bush, um, who, uh, you know, had the Iraq war and the 2008 crash and um, and Trump. So boomers, uh, right. their OK boomer really rings true. Um, and, and as you pointed out, the Census Bureau only considers, you know, actual, you know, generation to be the baby boom generation because it is that 4664 demarcation. Um, our generation, are they useful? Are they valuable? Are they problematic? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think they're certainly useful. I mean, look, you know, 90% of the world is both useful and problematic, right? I mean, <laughs> how look at it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the generational definitions are useful in that they allow us to track particular cohorts of people over time, right? But when I say a baby boomer, you understand, even if you don't know that it's 1946, 1964, you understand generally who I am talking about. And we understand, 
you know, the things that baby boomers experienced that were unique, unique to the baby boom, the assassination of MLK, things like that, right? Uh, you understand what that means. And you understand too, when I say millennials, you're talking about people roughly who were young when the, the when these, the century flipped over, right? You, you People get that and it is useful as a shorthand. It is of course also obfuscating. When we talk about baby boomers, you, we're talking about uh, you know, there are baby boomers who had kids who are baby boomers. That That's the nature of, you know, separating something out of right. the course of a 19 year time span. Um, and so those are those people had very different experiences in the same way that people were born at the beginning of the millennial generation. People at the end of the millennial generation have very different uh, life experiences. So, yes, I think they are useful in broad strokes. I think we tend to oversimplify them. Absolutely. Um, and I think, too, that, you know, in some ways they're a little bit like horoscopes. Right. And that we have this vague sense of, you know, who someone is if they are a member of this horoscope group. Uh, but also, you know, when you get to the boundaries of it, it starts getting a little vague and people aren't really sure how it applies. And that often you can draw totally wild, incorrect assumptions about people solely based on uh, their horoscope identifier. Right. And I would say one other thing, which is that when I've looked at horoscopes over the years, it, you know, I'm a Gemini. So the good aspects of that are, oh, I'm 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 fluid. I, I'm I can easily move from thing to thing. The negative is I'm uh, mercurial in, in ways that, you know, are detrimental I think that's also true of these generations, right? That you can, you, I mean, it is the boomers who uh, who created or, or, you know, were the force of the 60s, and it is the boomers who are the force of Trump's election. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's generally true. Yes, your, 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 your broader point about the fact that there are broadly applicable you know, comments that one can make about a generation, uh, that is the case. I mean, I think in each of those cases, I would add important caveats, and I'm happy to do so if you want me to. But yes, your your, your point is, is correct that, you know, even though it is easy to sort of overgeneralize, there are generalizations that can be drawn. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we will probably get into that as a conversation unfolds. I, I wanted to say that one of the things I've heard you say, and I'm just going to set it out here at the front mm-hmm. and then uh, go back to the next question, which is, you say that a key thesis of the book is that this generation as a collective has exercised so much power and continues to exercise so much power that like a fish in water, it may not even be aware of how exceptional it is in that regard. And that because of circumstances, uh, because of age, because of impending and occurring death, um, it now confronts for the first time uh, other generations that have different experiences, different needs, and for the first time, the world isn't just the way boomers want it to be. Is that a fair sort of sense of of kind of the the big thesis? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that is a supporting thesis to the the broader thesis, which is that we're at this moment of change that's Mm -hmm. driven in part Mm -hmm. by that. But yeah, yeah, I I think it's categorically true that the baby boom was so big and so powerful and so demanding, not necessarily, you know, consciously, but so demanding on American culture and politics uh, that it wasn't even aware of those demands uh, until it started being challenged for power as it has been in particularly in the past decade or so. Right, right. And so give us flesh out a bit the boomer generation. What are some of the significant aspects of it? Uh, that that helped define its 
exceptionalism besides its size? Well, I, I don't want to move past the size yet because we haven't really addressed it. And I think that one of the things that I, I myself discovered, and I think readers discover as they get into the book, is that the size really is exceptional, right? So, you know, we're talking about in 1945, the year before the boom began, there were about 140 million Americans. And then over the course of the next 19 years, there were an estimated 76 million babies born. So that's more than 50% of the entire population in the United States born over the course of the next less than two decades. Uh, and so it's not only that you have this massive infusion of people, you have a massive infusion of people, all of whom are in the same general age range. Uh, and you, you, you know, instantly you think about the effects that 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 has on decision making, right? I mean, you have to build schools, you have to you have to build elementary schools. One of the things I discovered as I was doing the book that I think is really fascinating is, you know, we talk about all these schools that were named after Confederate generals and so far forth as a as a backlash uh, to the civil rights movement. Part of that was just because they had to build all these schools because of the baby boom, right? Those two things overlap. And so there are all these new schools and they need names. And then there, you know, is this moment of backlash. So again, this is the baby boom itself, just by virtue of the sheer scale, forcing America to adapt to it. Uh, so over the course then of the 70 plus years of the baby booms in existence, you know, nearing eight, eight decades now, uh, you see the same pattern as the baby boom hits age milestones, it forces America to deal with it. And one of the underrecognized aspects of the current moment is that now the boomers are retiring. The peak year of baby boom births was in 1957. You add 65 to that and you get the year 2022, wow. right? So we, we are at this marker of all these baby boomers retiring. Our senior population is far larger as a percentage of the population and as a raw count than it's ever been before. And we've forgotten, oh, that's right. As people hit these milestones, we have to adapt to them. Um, so this is the moment we're in. And so, so that that is important, I think, to say. But then we also have this fact that the baby boom doesn't look like younger Americans, right? right. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. Let, so, me, let me let me jump, Philip. Please. Let me jump in and just add a, a little bit more to the, the point you were making about its its size and sure. its sort of sequential impact. Mm -hmm. um, there's the metaphor that you use, which is the python swallowing the pig, mm -hmm. um, that as you point out, the retirement um, is the latest uh, place where the pig happens to be. But but as you say, diapers, preschools, right. schools, teenagers, every as they come through, as as that generation comes through, whole industries um, expand, whole cultural phenomena occur and expand. And I, I think that's really a, a, a visual that I want people, not necessarily the pig and the python, but that mm -hmm. visual of as it checks off a box, American society changes. And, and that phenomenon is unique. Um, go ahead. Uh, I think one of the things now uh, that, that when you say it doesn't look like younger generations, pick it up there. Yeah, so again, I mean that both literally and figuratively. And so so literally, the baby boom is much whiter than younger America, and actually even than older generations, mm -hmm. because, you know, about a century ago, we had this uh, new uh, limit placed on immigration in response primarily to uh, immigrants coming from Eastern and Southern Europe, who themselves were sort of seen as sort of nebulously white uh, in many uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, there was a hard limit on immigration that had been placed that wasn't lifted until after the baby boom was over. Uh, and so the baby boom, interestingly, has gotten less white over time, thanks to immigrants from other countries who happen to have been born during the baby boom years and therefore just sort of generally count as baby mm -hmm, boomers. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is 
a much more white generation than, for example, the youngest Americans, uh, who are thanks in part to immigration uh, and you know this influx of, of uh, new Americans coming from Asia and from Mexico and from Central America. Uh, it is a much more diverse group, uh, and so you know one of the things that we see is these appeals to white grievance that are very common and manifested by people like uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you know this is also a generational appeal. You are also talking about, hey, we are worried about how America's changing. They're not worried about the people that they're seeing, you know, at the retirement community that they that they live in. They're worried about the people who are uh, they see on TV and they see, you know, hanging out outside of schools, right? We, right? Like this is this is how it works. But there are other ways in which the boom is different than younger generations, and particularly the millennials. Uh, millennials are much more likely to be college educated, uh, in part because boomers started this trend of higher college attendance in part because there weren't enough jobs because you know again this is one of those things where all of you know they started to graduate from high school it's like oh my god what are we going to do with them right uh you know they, a lot of them were drafted to vietnam you know the fact that we had so many young men at that point in time was absolutely a factor in what was going on in vietnam uh, but, you know, they started this trend of higher college attendance, and then that has continued and actually picked up. And then it became sort of you had to have a college degree in order to get anywhere. So you, young people are much more likely to have a college degree. They're more likely to identify as LGBTQ and be more open uh, to, to same-sex relationships. They are less likely to be participants in institutions, including political parties, including attending church. Uh, they're more likely to live in cities, albeit only narrowly. So there are all these things that you can see as I delineate those differences, a lot of them also overlap with partisanship. And so we have this young generation that lives a very different life than older Americans. And the ways in which they live their lives often overlap with their tending to vote much more heavily democratic. And then that, of course, then reinforces this partisan generational divide as well. Mm, very clear, very clear. And, and as you say, um, the, the boomers had more college education, more education than their parents. Um, but the the, uh, the that that trend once started um, then became uh, much much greater and so on. So, so I just want to mention that they had the same relationship to the generation before them, uh, uh, which which is partially uh, why the '60s happened. Um, that same openness, that that openness to to others, to change, to novelty that uh, now makes certain members of the boomer generation uncomfortable in looking at younger people was part of what made the boomer generation, um, uh, quote, revolutionary in its time as youth. Um, this thing about um, polarization is obviously going to be, it, it's, a, it's a big part of America. It's a big part of how we confront those crises that I mentioned in the introduction. And it's a big part of what these young people have grown up in, right? In other words, this has been going on. Let's talk about the year 2008. 2008, with the election of Barack Obama, as, as I've heard you say, um, seemed to be an inflection point. Uh, a younger black man might have seemed like the inevitable move into a future. But perhaps what has had greater impact was the reaction to that possibility um, uh, and the desire for an angry and even violent return to the past. Yeah, so 2008, you're absolutely right, was a seminal year in terms of all of this. Uh, I mean, again, 2008, we're talking about a point in time at which 
Uh, we've just come out of the recession, uh, or rather the recession was just sort of starting. I mean, the, the sharpest effects of it were occurring right around the time of the election. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but the aftermath of the 2008 election was very much colored by uh, this, the, the financial crisis, which of course very much heightened the insecurity that a lot of older Americans were feeling, particularly boomers who were just then starting to hit retirement age. Uh, but of course there were these underlying issues as well of the changing demography of the United States. Um, and so 2008, uh, we had uh, obviously the election of Barack Obama. We had news reports uh, that emerged shortly after that about you know the, the decline in the American white majority. Uh, you know several years after that, but Barack Obama was really hailed as this generational figure. He was seen as justifiably as sort of the voice of young America, and so you had the Tea Party backlash, which was ostensibly about taxation, but also had a very real undercurrent of. My God, what is happening when you know young Americans going out and voting for this guy who may not even be American and is you know endorses socialist policies, right? Like that was an undergirding sentiment was that you had older Americans looking at the younger generation and saying, "What are they voting for?" And it really was 2008 that you really saw this this generational divide in voting really emerge. There was you know a big gap in 2004 uh, between Bush and Kerry, but it was really soaring in 2008 and 2012. And that really set, you know, it, it is not a coincidence that that happened just as baby boomers are starting to hit retirement age. Uh, but yeah, the Barack Obama presidency, not necessarily through anything Barack Obama did, but largely through the reaction to it, was really one of the, the pivotal moments in this. Right. It, when it looked like it was going on way and it went not so fast. Uh, let me tell people, by the way, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking today with Philip Bump. He's a national columnist for The Washington Post. Um, has a newsletter, How to Read This Chart. And uh, we're talking about his first book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. And you can learn more about all of Philip's work at pbump, P-B-U-M-P dot com. Um, one thing that, that, that uh, I, I, I tend to think of when I think about that uh, reaction to uh, the Obama election and what we've seen uh, in the 15, it's amazing to think it's now 15 years, 15 years since then, is Arlie Hoax Chilled Strangers in Their Own Land. I assume you're familiar with the book. Mm -hmm. And she says, what was the story that motivated those people that she spent time with in uh, uh, Louisiana, in Cancer Alley in, in Louisiana, to hate the government more than the corporations that were um, killing them. And uh, the story that she says they tell themselves, these are older rural voters, older rural whites, in line for the American dream, feeling they're not moving ahead, and at least in their perspective, people like Barack Obama, the Democrats, young people, helping other people break in line in front of them. And, and I, I just think that that's uh, what we're talking about is a, a, a segment of the baby boom generation and that in that perspective. Yeah, I mean, until we get basically to 2020, 
it's important to recognize that the the generations older than the baby boom were just as if not more conservative than they were. I mean, in 2020, the, the baby boom generation preferred Trump over Biden, but not by much, but you know, by by single digit percentage points. Uh, it was younger generations that were overwhelmingly for Biden, much bigger divide. Uh, you know, they're much more partisan, and you know, by contrast, then the baby boom generation looks more conservative simply because it isn't as wildly liberal as as uh, younger generations tend to vote. Uh, so that said, yes, I mean, I think that it is easy uh, to to ascribe to uh, the baby boomers things that I think older Americans in general, uh, you know, are traits that are, are, are really better attributed to older Americans in general. Um, that said, uh, one of the things that we saw happen uh, in the immediate, uh, for, sh shortly before Donald Trump declared his candidacy in 2015, which of course was another signal moment here, was uh, the emergence in 2014 of two issues that were really predicated on race. And the first was the uh, real emergence of the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which triggered a backlash that obviously everyone's familiar with. Uh, but second of all, the, the less remembered uh, surge in unaccompanied minors at the border between the US and Mexico. Uh, and that really triggered this huge backlash on in the right-wing media ecosystem uh, against immigration. It is, you know, one of the reasons that Eric Cantor was ousted from his leadership position in the Republican Party in the primaries in 2014. And that was one of the reasons that Donald Trump focused so heavily on immigration as soon as he started his campaign. You know, in doing so, he made clear to Republican voters who were hearing Fox News and reading on Breitbart that, that these were the things that they should be mad about, particularly, you know, immigrants coming across the border. He was saying those things that that they were reading on those sites, you know, inaccurate things, overwrought things, you know, dishonest things. Uh, but he was saying them, and that's how he got the reputation of being the truth teller, because he was saying the things <laughs> they were reading conservative media, right. uh, and right. that's what powered his popularity, right? And so, yes, I mean, you, you're absolutely right uh, that that there is a generational aspect to this that overlaps with race. Uh, but Donald Trump's particular position was uh, really born of what happened in 2014 as well. And although you can't pinpoint the year 2014, it seems to me a third thing which you cite and mm -hmm. which was uh, certainly an, uh, uh, an engine of, of Trump's success was the emergence of social media as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the social media is sort of fascinating uh, in terms of its overlap with politics because social media was adopted much more slowly by older Americans than younger Americans. Mm -hmm. Social media provided younger Americans a way uh, to organize, uh, which, you know, was sort of trickled up from there. Uh, but it also provided Donald Trump a way to step around gatekeepers. Uh, and so it was absolutely the case that, you know, in addition to the existence of partisan news websites that were disinterested in accuracy, like Breitbart, uh, you had Donald Trump being able to speak directly to people, you know, offering just flatly false claims that went unchecked uh, that were then sort of taken as as truth and again helped build this idea like, oh, why do they want Trump to say these things? And their assumption is not because it's, you know, nonsense. It's because, oh, they're trying to keep him down. They're trying to silence our voices. And that's been that has been a central aspect of his politics ever since. You know, and part of that, honestly, is born of the fact that older Americans grew up in a media universe in which you didn't, there wasn't this level of misinformation, right? You had more limited news outlets. Uh, you had newspapers and television stations. Uh, there weren't that many of them. They held themselves to a particular standard. They weren't always 100% accurate, of course. No one's going to say that. Uh, but they were at least adhering to some sense of, you know, 
some some internal mechanisms uh, by which they held themselves to account that that these new sites and social media particularly don't. Um, and so the fact that young people emerged in this this universe where they're used to seeing nonsense all over the place and adjudicating whether or not it's accurate. I think that Donald Trump was also advantaged by the fact that older people were less prone to using social media and less likely to understand that a lot of it was total garbage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they'd grown up believing what you hear and read is true. Uh, okay. This must be so. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting there um, in terms of the young people's response is that on the one side, and you, I know you've said that, 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 that you've seen research that says this, that young people having grown up in an age of spin are more discerning. Um, one thing that I want to ask you about as a counter to that, and it, mm -hmm. it, it would not cover the majority of young people. I think for the majority of young people, what, what you've said is true. But I also think that young people's perspective of doubt uh, can actually be overdone. And, and then you end up with conspiracy theory, right? The, the fact that whatever the mainstream media says can't be true because uh, we know everything is spun and everything is manufactured. Um, I've seen people begin with a jaundiced view of spin and end up as conspiracy mongers. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, when we talk about large groups of people, we necessarily are, are overgeneralizing. And I think that's true. I think the fact that, you know, there has been research done showing that, that younger Americans are, are more able, are generally better able to spot misinformation, I think reinforces the point. Are there still people that believe, you know, look, there's a lot of young people that just embrace total nonsense. That's what I'm saying. Know, like, yeah. Listen, listen to Joe Rogan and, you know, things along those lines. And, you know, have little interest in, in trying to determine uh, whether or not something is accurate and just, you know, they want to do their own research, which is the most. Exactly, exactly. And, that, know, I mean, I have gotten that retort. Exactly. Right. I will ask a question of a young person and say, we'll do the research. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, and it's fascinating. I mean, Julian Sanchez is a really great writer and who, who thinks a lot about this stuff, makes the very valid point that essentially when these people say they're doing their own research, they're just basically substituting some other skeptic who claims themselves to have done the research and say, I agree with that skeptic, you know, like that's right. Joe Rogan, and they don't actually do any research, which is that's absurd. right. And that skeptic is more trusted because I suspect spin uh, from the that's mainstream. Right. So that's right. I, th I think what let's move now and, and we may have time to deal with some of the support. I want to move now is to the problem of, of what, what I think the, the, what drives your book, what drives your own passion for this subject is how are we going to deal with this? Let's, one, there is a transition coming um, from the, uh, the dominance of the boomer generation. Um, it's, it's coming just because that's the way time and nature work and so on. Mm -hmm. What are the problems it's going to create and how are we going to navigate as well as possible uh, through this transition, through these narrows, if you will. And, and one of the things you talk about is boomers building barriers around their power. Right. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are lots of examples of this. I, I think it's important to say at the outset that one of the things I try to do in the book is be very judicious about recognizing that I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I, right. there is very easy to, to over-assume that current trends will continue. Uh, you know, I, there were times at which my editor was like, well, what's going to happen here? And I just feel like, well, I don't want to say, I can't say, <laughs> like, I, you know, I'm not going to be this guy who in 10 years time, they're like, hey, look what this jerk said, you know, back in 2021, right? Um, 
So, so I, I, I try to be very careful about that. So that said, yes, this is a moment of transition between generations. And as part of that, we have seen, not just now, but over time, uh, that baby boomers have, have built systems that to protect their own power. And it's not necessarily even uh, you know, conscientiously doing so. There are some circumstances where, for example, you know, they, uh, you know, changes in tenure at universities in order to make it so that people can work longer, things along those lines. Uh, uh, you know, staying at, in, staying in the United States Senate uh, mm. <laughs> uh, beyond what might be advisable as a means of protecting one's own power, for example. Uh, the example I like to cite, though, is housing. Uh, and in part because this is a primary concern for a lot of young people, the inability to be able to afford housing, uh, but also because it speaks to the scale, the power of the scale of the baby boom, right? So the, the way I tell the story is this, and this is you know, obviously a very specific example, but I think manifests in a lot of ways. So imagine that you have an older American who is looking forward to retirement or has just begun his retirement. Polling shows a lot of those people see their homes as a storehouse of value, something that they're gonna tap into over the course of their retirement uh, in order to you know, meet their needs. Uh, so now you have your city come forward and say, hey, you know what we're thinking about doing this building, an apartment building down the block. The response to that naturally is going to be that is change and change is potentially bad for the value of my home. Mm -hmm. And so you have people who are homeowners go out and, you know, there's research cited in the book that shows it really is predominantly older homeowners who participate in these discussions who say, I don't want that to happen. Don't let don't build that apartment building because that value. Right. And, you know, it, it, it can't it's not even necessarily have done research. It's just that they are worried about that because this is their retirement. This is their future. And so what happens then is you have all these people speaking out saying we don't want this apartment building. And then a lot of those apartment buildings get nixed or the you know, the mixed use housing proposal gets nixed. And it's not because they themselves are so powerful that the baby boom generation said, let's block all new housing. It is that the baby boom generation is very big and a lot of them own houses and a lot of them are at retirement age and a lot of them are using their houses as storehouses of value that they don't then want to see these new housing projects built, which may decrease the value of their homes because it affects them personally. And there's just so many baby boomers, there's so many seniors now in that position that that has a net effect on the economy. And I think that that is demonstrably the case uh, and a good example of the ways in which even unintentionally baby boomers can build barriers around their own power. Very, very good. How about, uh, so, so yeah, let's, let's deal with a few issues. Race and immigration. Um, you definitely um, believe that uh, race is a, a critical uh, piece of this. And let me just remind listeners, we said that because of immigration policies from about 1925 until about the end of the baby boom generation in the mid-60s, there was a limitation on immigration. And so it is the whitest generation. Um, Talk a bit about race and immigration, and let me just throw in so that you can hit that as you go along, which is that one of the things driven, as we've said, as the pig goes through the python, is retirement. You pointed out, which I, I, I hadn't even re remembered, was that 57 was the peak year, which means those people are hitting 65 this year. Social Security is in trouble. Um, we're not going to have the same number of younger workers to pay for the retirements, that ratio is changing. That's a problem that immigration is a piece of. Talk about race and immigration. Right. 
Yes. I mean, just very quickly on your point about Social Security, it's fascinating that as the Republican Party has become more densely the party of older Americans and those older Americans are now hitting retirement age, that there is much less chatter among Republicans to, to appreciate what they'd like to call entitlements, right? You know, you're right that, that the, the there is a real challenge in the amount of funds uh, available to Social Security. In part, that's the design of the system, that you have this huge surge in workers that are now retiring and pulling back, you know, the, the money that they put in the system, uh, but it does raise real questions about the extent to which uh, uh, people will be able to receive the amount of money that they expected from the government without uh, having more workers in the mix. Um, you know, part of what we're seeing is the fact that people are retiring. You know, when I spoke to uh, experts in 2021, when I was doing research for the book, they said, look, in two years, we're going to be gasping for jobs. That was the quote that someone gave me, and it was exactly right that we're looking, you know, there's so many jobs out there, and we're looking for workers to fill them. Immigration is a way to do that. But of course, immigration is a very salient issue on the political right. So while Social Security uh, <laughs> reform is off the table, it is the case that immigration is still a central part of uh, uh, what Republicans in particular are concerned about and is a driving factor for them. Uh, you know, we see this in part because this appeals to sort of the white grievance issues that Donald mm -hmm. Trump and others, including Ron DeSantis, have been uh, uh, trying to leverage, um, but it also means that we're in this weird moment. So what happens then? Is is there a Republican candidate or president potentially in the future who is able to say, look, okay, the time has come, we need to figure out a better path forward on immigration because otherwise you're going to get less in your social security check. Like that's potentially a compelling issue. But does that outweigh then the fear that America is becoming not white, which of course is an overstated fear, which is addressed in multiple points in the book as well. Um, you know, but then of course there's just you know, basic racism. And it is not the case that baby boomers are uniformly racist. It is, however, the case uh, that there is a, a, a very strong uh, 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 current of fear within older Americans in particular and the baby boom about the ways in which American demography is changing that, again, is overstated, uh, but obviously has, for a lot of people, an undercurrent of racism to it. Right. And is, uh, it seems to me, easily manipulated and right. and um, and expanded by those uh, for whom that sense of grievance, that that fear of a loss of 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 status, power, whatever you call it, uh, standing right. um, uh, that to fan that has proven Trump and others to be uh, to be a winning formula. Exactly. And so then the question becomes, when we talk about what happens in the future, the question becomes, how long is that a winning formula? Right. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who would argue that was a winning formula by a fluke on November 8th, 2016, and has not been since. Uh, 2018, the Republicans got crushed. 2020, Donald Trump lost by a wide margin, if only in the popular vote. 2022, Republicans underperformed. Uh, you know, maybe it is the case that Donald Trump made this a pitch in 2016 it happened to work then in part because of who he's running against and it's not going to work again or it may be the case that this is what the republican party is going to have to do is you know quadruple down in subsequent elections on appealing to these sorts of grievances among you know rural voters in particular in red states where they can maintain their edge in uh, the Senate, in states where they can maintain a slight uh, edge in the Electoral College, and by that mechanism, continue to got power. But, you know, at some point in time, the Republican Party is going to have to figure out how it appeals to non-white voters uh, at, at scale. 
uh, in 2012, after they lost, after Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, they did this autopsy uh, mm -hmm. to consider, you know, what, what do we do? We, we weren't expected to lose this race. We lost this race. What do we do moving forward? And they said, well, look, we need to do a better job of reaching out to non-white voters. And then Donald Trump came along and said, oh, or what we could do is quadruple down on it, right? You know, and really focus on immigration and focus on, on race issues. Uh, after the 2022 elections, Ronald McDaniel said, hey, look, we need to figure out what we're going to do. And one of the recommendations they came back with was we need to reach out better to non-white voters. Uh, when we think about, and here I'll, I'll just do a little segue, which is when we think about what American demography looks like over time, uh, the Census Bureau expects that by the year 2060, America broadly, the demographic composition of America broadly when looking at age and race, is going to look basically like what Florida looks like today. And so I, I tell that to people in part because there's this assumption, particularly on the left, that America is just going to keep getting more and more and more liberal. But of course, Florida is not today known as this, you know, Democratic paradise, right? Yep. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis is, is not a liberal, I think it's safe to say. Um, but there are, of course, aspects of Florida's dem demography now that doesn't match what it's going to look like in 2060, including that, you know, the, the older population in the future will be much less heavily white. Um, but it is also the case that parties can change. And so the Republican Party can change its politics. It can shift its rhetoric. It can move away from this and almost certainly will over the course of the next 10, 15 years because it has to. Uh, uh, if it wants to succeed and retain power, which it does. Um, and so I think that, you know, this assumption Democrats will win forever, which, you know, I mean, that's a straw man. I don't think anyone's actually saying that. But it's just yeah. sort of this internalized <laughs> sense that, you know, America is, is going to become this, this haven of, of, for, for the Democratic Party. I think it's probably not right, but it may be the case that America generally has more liberal positions in the future than, than it does now, um, assuming it survives as a, an existing democracy. Right. Uh, there was that that, you know, that those articles that I, I guess maybe followed o Obama's election, which was that, you know, there was a demographic inevitability that favored the Democrats. Um, and as we found out, the reaction to uh, that demographic change uh, proved that that was not an inevitability. Um, why why Florida? Why not California? California also has a uh, housing crisis, also has uh, uh, older, also has um, a lot of different ethnicities. Um, why Florida, not California? Well, the question isn't what America looks like in terms of its approach to things. The question is just straight demography. And the reason why is because Florida is a lot older than California. And ah, so okay, Florida today it looks like what America's going to look like in 2060 because the population is going to continue to get old. Now, yeah, the, the last chapter of the book says, okay, what then does America look like in the future? And it addresses, you know, that demographically it'll look like Florida with caveats, but, you know, will its politics look like California where you have this, you know, this multi-ethnic multi uh, leadership uh, that manages to work together and, you know, make decisions? Will it look like Wisconsin uh, where there is this right-wing, heavily white minority that manages to, uh, you know, protect its own power that, in a way that's, you know, discordant with actual uh, democratic voting in the state. Uh, what looked like New Mexico, uh, which has historically had um, a, a a heavily Hispanic population that is sort of works hand in hand uh, with white power structures. You know, it's it's not really clear. Uh, and so I look at those four states in particular as potential. Uh, roadmaps for how American politics might evolve as mm -hmm, mm -hmm, does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing, when, when you describe Florida uh, demographically, you, you focus on age and race. What right. about education and the current, uh, because education, as you point out, is is so important 
in sure. the distinctions between the generations and so on. Um, uh, education seems to be a, a, a focus of DeSantis's attacks um, in a way that, you know, I, I, you get where I'm, I'm going. It seems like sure. that's a wild card in there. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, again, look, Florida matches demographically what the United States is supposed to look like, right? I, I am not saying that America is going to look like Florida politically in, in 2060. In fact, I don't think that it will. I'm just saying that when we talk about just using demographics as a field guide, you're not going to necessarily get a, a good picture of, of what's likely to happen. Uh, it is it is absolutely the case that across the board, we're going to see uh, that there are differences now between old Americans with what old Americans will look like. And education is one of those things. You know, will it continue to be the case, though, that uh, college-educated voters vote much more heavily Democratic than Republican? Probably not, because the Republican Party will need to appeal to those voters, right? So those things all apply in subcategories. The point of the Florida example is simply mm. to say, when we're looking solely at demographics, yeah. you know, what, what you expect may not be what you get. So what, what are, um, when you look for how to reckon with uh, the problems, the issues raised by the transition. Um, what are some of the, what, what do you see uh, young people can do? What do you see boomers can do to try to have a, uh, a 2060 that works? Well, I think first of all, you have to be invested in the idea of having America be a rural democracy in which everyone has a voice and gets to win on what's happening. Right. There are a lot of Americans that simply don't believe that is should be the future, uh, that they don't believe that everyone should have the right to vote, should be evenly allocated. There just aren't. Uh, and a lot of young Americans don't believe that. You know, one of the things that I found as I was doing research for the book, there's a study that was done in 2016 uh, globally, and it asked, you know, how important it was or how receptive people were to the idea that you should have elections that, 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 that allocate power. The group that was most open to simply having a strongman leader was actually young people who uh, intended to vote Republican. Wow. Um, and so that's not good. I mean, it's not it's not a large percentage of population, but it, that's not ideal. Um, so <laughs> he said with some understatement. So, you know, assuming that America just sort of agrees to that, then um, I, I'm not sure what how we resolve a lot of these issues. I, I think that the baby boom, as I've been talking about this book, a lot of people who are members of the baby boom generation, particularly on the left, have said, hey, look, I feel like I'm getting short shrift here, that, um, mm. you know, that our generation did so much work on issues like, you know, choice and issues like race and issues like even just cracking open the door for the LGBT community that young Americans don't appreciate. And my response has always been, well, yeah, in part because that was effective, that those changes were effective. And now young people don't have to fight for those things. You know, choice obviously being a recent reintroduction to that category, but um, that young people were able to focus on things that uh, are, are new and emergent problems like climate change and gun violence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to, to a larger extent, uh, the oppression of LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is a marker of the success of the baby boom generation in those regards uh, from the perspective of the left, uh, which may also serve as, OK, well, then maybe that's what things look like, too, that by the year 2060, there is a new slate of issues because we have resolved climate change. Not very likely, but, you know, who knows, or, <laughs> or gun violence or, you know, we have resolved some of these things in the same way the boomers had. And at that point in time, it's millennials who are now the old seniors who are like, oh, gosh, darn it. These kids today don't understand how much work we did to limit gun, you know, gun violence yeah, in the United yeah. States. Uh, that may be the future, too. 
So who knows? Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it struck me uh, as I was preparing for this, how the recent Supreme Court rulings, starting with Roe v. Wade, affirmative action, student debt, LBG crew, uh, you know, the, the, the elevation of religious bigotry over the rights of uh, LGBTQ um, are definitely rulings brought in by this uh, waning Republican minority rule that all uh, make life harder for young people. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's painted with a broad brush too, but yes, I think that it is the case both that the recent Supreme, and I've written about this, the, both of the recent Supreme Court rulings are a reflection of the harder right turn in the conservative majority, but also exist because of this backlash that we've seen broadly, mm-hmm. right? It is not simply the case, for example, that the Supreme Court decided uh, that it was going to, you know, find that this web designer can proactively weed out same-sex marriages as she's, you know, doing her websites, uh, but it is the case that they decided this was a case worth hearing, right? And so, it, you know, whatever the legality of this issue is, whatever the arguments used about the First Amendment and speech and so on and so forth, which of course are not inconsequential, although I think that they're sort of overstated in this case, it is also the case that there were pressures upon them and that there was a movement that put this case in front of the Supreme Court. All of those things go into play here. And so this absolutely is a reflection of the current moment on the right, uh, which again, I think is largely attributable to generational change. Last question, Philip. And I know that you have categorically said you don't have the answers. You are not a predictor. Um, Your gut. Have we turned things around in 25 years? And if so, what were the key things that might have happened to do that? Honestly, I I think I can answer that fairly simply, which is just that the generational shift in power has occurred. And that, you know, I think that assuming, again, that the the fundamental components of American democracy remain intact, uh, which, you know, in that regard, the recent Supreme Court decisions in terms of gerrymandering and so on and so forth, or, 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 you know, the electoral uh, count actor, you know, the, 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 the rejection of the, uh, uh, Moore versus Harper and the Jerry. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. Um, the, the, the legislative theory, um, those are good, uh, you know, in terms of protecting the American democracy. And I think with that in mind, you know, this is a kink potentially that, that we have this older, wider population. They are, you know, God bless them. These are my parents. I love them, but they will not be here forever. And when they're not here forever, I think that changes power. And I think it lessens the moment of tension that we're in because there's less of that struggle to retain power because they're simply, you know, that they're not going to be able to do so. I I don't necessarily see that as a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that that is a way in which this potentially gets resolved. Mm -hmm. And, And so that was the how... Does your gut tell you we do turn things around? That that we are able sure. uh, that we are able to confront some of these crises that we've been um, almost uh, avoiding by fighting with each other. I don't know. I really don't. You, you really know, don't. I, I mean, I when I was writing the introduction to my book in twenty twenty one twenty two early twenty twenty two, you know, I, I said that you know I felt optimistic about the future of American democracy, and I actually I did that as I was going through revisions to be like I, I try to be optimistic about. It. I try to be optimistic. I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of anger and hate. Uh, I think that there has been a, a successful incorporation of younger Americans for whom this generational tension obviously isn't a driver into this idea that we need to advocate for an America that doesn't isn't a pluralistic democracy. Uh, I think a lot of people accept that. Uh, and I hope that, you know, this is something that is temporary. Um, but I, you know, 
I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for, for, for your candor um, in resisting both your publisher, your editor, and my, and my attempts <laughs> <laughs> to get you to say something that you would regret later. Again, the new book is The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. And the website is pbump.com, P-B-U-M-P.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website if you want to receive my weekly email telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and links to probably 10 or 15 articles to flesh out the conversation. You can sign up at my site or you can email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at Mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform Podcast at Apple Podcasts and most of the major podcast sites. You'll find years of podcasts at those sites and at my site. Uh, Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Philip Bump. Keep up your good work. My pleasure. Thank you, sir.